1: the day, technology is neutral. It's not pro-democracy and it's not pro-authoritarianism. And I think the reality is that as we're developing new technologies, we need to be much, much better at understanding on the front end what the upside elements of those technologies are, what the opportunities are, and then what the downside risks are. There's very clear evidence about the relationship between Huawei ZTE and the Chinese government, in particular the security services, as well as, of course, the party. The Trump administration's approach is not a strategy. Parts of what the Trump administration is doing, I think, actually undermine our ability to have a a smarter, tougher, more strategic approach to China. I do think that there is potential for even greater bipartisan consensus on what to do about China, but that may not necessarily reflect in any way what the Trump administration is doing.
0: G'day, welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the Australian National University. In this episode, we're absolutely privileged to have in the studio Laura Rosenberger, who is the director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She is a former senior career diplomat and national security official and was national security advisor to Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Laura Rosenberger, welcome to the National Security Podcast.
1: Hey, Catherine. Happy to be here.
0: Now, you've been in Australia now for about two weeks. You're a distinguished uh, Vice-Chancellor's Distinguished Visitor at the ANU, and we've been introducing you to all things Australia and democracy. You've learned about democracy sausages, donkey votes, compulsory voting, and crossbenches. I was wondering, from your perspective as an American in Australia, what has struck you as interesting, um, surprising, or unusual about Australian democracy and our approach to national security challenges? Well, you, you d-
1: neglected to, to list the kangaroo boxing match that you also uh, managed to introduce me to while I was here, and I think while it may not be um, directly related to the health of democracy, um, it certainly is uh, an amusing sight. Um, so, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to miss uh, including that. But but no, it's really been an amazing um, nearly two weeks here, getting to kind of deep dive both on um, Australian thinking and and procedures around democratic resilience resilience, um, but also, um, you know, approaches to, to countering foreign interference. I think um, two things stick out at me just sort of off the top of my head. Um, one from the list of things that you mentioned, um, you know, obviously I think compulsory voting is one area that is quite different from, from the American approach. Um, and I think, you know, uh, different with a without sort of ascribing positive or negative aspects there. Um, but I think uh, that that is certainly one thing that that is... Um, presents different challenges and opportunities, potentially. We'll think about it that way. Um, I, I also think, um, as I think particularly about not only democratic resilience, but um, countering foreign interference and and what that means um, and the best ways of going about that. One of the things I often have to start off with um, to U.S. audiences in talking about strategies to counter foreign interference is the need um, for it to be a bipartisan approach. Um, that's something that in the United States has, unfortunately, not really characterize how we've been responding to this challenge and I think it's um, much um, you know uh, it's it's much to our detriment that we are not responding that way um, and so here in Australia um, I had known already that the response here had really been bipartisan um, to the foreign interference challenge but really getting to appreciate that in a lot of um, you know great depth uh, through conversations with people from across the political spectrum and from different sectors of government the private sector civil society that's really been an encouraging thing for me, uh, because I think it
0: really, absolutely is essential to responding effectively to foreign interference. Well, certainly we do have a long history in Australia of bipartisanship on a lot of foreign policy and national security issues. One thing, as a nation, we also have a long tradition of is a healthy skepticism for politicians and for democracy as a process. Now. In many respects, that's a that's a good thing, and it's part of the Australian culture. But in recent times, we've seen a, a bit of an alarming collapse in trust in politics in Australia, and also. Uh Trust in the very fact that democracy as a system of government is the best way to take us forward into the future. And I know that that coincides with global trends as well in the survey data and in kind of sliding into a liberalism that we see in um, countries across the world. How are you thinking about, I mean, you work for the Alliance for Securing Democracy. How are you thinking about the challenges that democracies face in continuing to be relevant and um, robust into the future?
1: I think it's a huge challenge. Um, And for me, it comes down to a couple of things. One, I think, is, you know, certainly... 1989, you know, it was, we're kind of coming up on the 30th anniversary um, of the of the end of the the Cold War, the the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, you know, there were those who were de- declaring an end to history, and the idea that you know uh, democracies could be consolidated and therefore kind of would be self perpetuating um, was was sort of the the thinking du jour. And I think um, in many ways um, the the awareness of why democracy matters and And the need to continue to, as I think about it, you know, tend the garden of democracy. Um, It doesn't uh, actually take care of itself. Um, Democracy is as much a practice and a set of norms um, as it is a set of laws or constitutional underpinnings. And so I think that a lot of people around the world kind of fell out of the practice of democracy and stop thinking or 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 living in many sort of visible ways, in daily practice kind of ways. The the very essential core elements of of democratic practice. And we thought about democracy just as a system of governments when it's really so much more than that. Um, and so for me, a lot of what we need to do to build democratic resilience, what we need to do to restore faith in democracy is number one, um, connect it back to people's lives. Why does democracy matter to people's daily lives? Um, number two, you know, what are the basic practices of democracy that citizens can engage in? I think people automatically obviously think of, of voting. Now, again, here in Australia, it's compulsory. And so, that's different um, running for office all these kinds of, of ways but you know there's there's many ways to practice small D democracy whether that's um, being involved in community organizations um, you know being uh, sitting on on local uh, city councils or whatever the case may be um, even you know little things uh, like some of my neighbors in Washington organizing themselves to get more dog parks um, as a dog owner I certainly think that's an inherent good um, but there's a lot of ways to practice democracy, and by the way, you know, as we have, you know, as we increasingly spend time online in uh, in the social media space, where our online communities tend to be segregated into people who agree with us, um, and where we don't have as much contact with people who don't agree with us, or where when we encounter people who don't agree with us, our tendency is to argue rather than listen, um, and the medium certainly facilitates that. I think building, you know, community spaces again, where we can engage with neighbors um, who may or may not agree with us on big political questions, but simply having some of that connective tissue that allows us to be citizens in a democracy with different views, but understanding that our values may still broadly be the same is also really important to rebuilding some of that, um, that practice of democracy.
0: It's interesting too, you mentioned the period following the Cold War in the 1990s where in many respects we thought democracy had won the global challenge and that authoritarianism was kind of consigned to the dustbin of history. But the 1990s was also the time when we saw transformational technological change starting, the commercialisation of the internet. Um, And it strikes me as at the same time as we thought democracy had kind of won the day, we also thought that these new technologies, in particular the internet, would kind of lead the charge of democracy and another wave of democratization forward, that the internet, that connecting people via the internet would be enough to kind of create those spaces of community that you spoke about, and that having free speech and, uh, and the transfer of information on the internet would keep our politicians accountable. Um, that was the accepted wisdom back then. Fast forward to today, and there's a lot of fear that those technologies and, and new emerging technologies don't just not help democracy, but in some ways play into the hands of authoritarians. Should we, how should we be thinking about kind of the relationship between democracy and technology from a security perspective?
1: Yeah, I think we went from thinking about technology as an inherent good. Um, you know, Bill Clinton famously talked about how um, you know, the internet going to China and trying to maintain control with it there was sort of like nailing jello to the wall. Um, you can't do it. And and his thinking was that once the internet arrived in China, there would be no way for the Chinese Communist Party to continue to exercise the kind of control that it had previously on the information space, and that certainly has been proven false as China uh, has has shown its ability to build the Great Firewall. Um, you know now uh, what many people even talk about is the Great Cannon as it's um, you know starting to to build the the firewall out um, and and you know layering on top of that now of course its system of the you know social credit um, enabled by facial recognition and other kinds of surveillance technology. You know, even more recently, of course, we had, you know, the conversations around the Arab Spring where social media was really seen as a key function, you know, key enabling um, function for, for organizing activists. And, um, you know, I think obviously in the last few years, we've seen much more directly, again, some of the downsides um, where, uh, where authoritarian regimes have figured out not only how to push back on, on those uses of, of technology, but also how to actually gain the upper hand with them. My own view is that at the end of the day, technology is neutral. It's not sort of pro-democracy and it's not pro-authoritarianism. But I think that we vacillated between technology is this inherent good and now technology is this, you know, inherent evil. Um, and I think the reality is that as we're developing new technologies, we need to be much, much better at understanding on the front end what the upside um, elements of those technologies are, what the opportunities are,
0: and then what the downside risks are. And when you say "we" in that formulation, I mean, is this something government should lead on? Is it is a citizen uh, movement that we need? Is it indeed something that the private sector needs to be thinking about more? And if so, how, um, you know, how do we start making those movements so that the private sector is more on the front foot on this stuff?
1: Well, I think it is broadly a whole of society challenge, um, but we uh, break that down in a couple of different ways. So, one is, um, you know, as the, as the creators of technology, um, I do think that the private sector has a particular role to play here. In fact, probably what I would argue is an obligation um, to maybe do a little bit uh, more work um, of, you know, what we would call red teaming um, or doing doing risk, asses- risk assessments on a number of different fronts um, before technologies are, are new technologies are shipped. Um, there's been um, this kind of uh, pack and ship mentality in Silicon Valley in particular that's been very focused on moving technology very quickly because change is moving fast and we need to be able to keep up with the pace and, and um, number one, out-compete. Um, you know, as in many industries, the short-termism of, of um, investors and Wall Street and quarterly earnings reports all feed into this process. But the reality is that um, the the mindset has traditionally been on many of these things that you ship the product and then you figure out what the vulnerabilities and risks are once it's in the wild and you patch them. And the problem now is that we've seen a number of instances where those vulnerabilities are first detected by adversarial or authoritarian nation states um, who exploit them in ways that are very detrimental to our national security. We're not just talking about a small bug in the system. Um, We're talking about, you know, pretty significant implications. And so we've got to be uh, we, as in the the tech sector, has to be better about doing some of that red teaming. But I also think that that requires better connectivity with the national security community, with government. Um, government's got to be forthcoming with uh, what the risks are, where the threats may be, and ensure that there is that kind of connective tissue. Frankly, we also need um, policymakers who better understand the technologies that they are talking about and potentially trying to
0: regulate. Um, and, well, and, and this is the risk in this space, right? Because we know that action needs to be taken, but knee-jerk reactions to kind of technological risks, or indeed risks about how society uses technology, which is even perhaps more of a human or a social problem than a technology problem, risk in some sense uh, overstepping the mark or having very unintended consequences that we that we necessarily weren't thinking about. So I guess the education piece you're talking about there is is important as well, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a complicated set of challenges where sometimes the most obvious or easiest solutions are not the best ones. And so uh, certainly when it comes to to regulation and legislation, that's not to say that um, there aren't any things that can be done. I mean, for instance, in the United States, we don't have any framework, any legal framework around data at all. Um, no data protection no data We've privacy kind of no There's a weird patchwork,
0: patchwork of privacy legislation and some data protection but not in any kind of universal
1: way right not in a universal way not in a way that um is actually um and and the, the patchwork is is largely um been been built over time for a different era frankly um that doesn't reflect the kind of um data collection that is Enabled on modern platforms of today, and certainly if we want to project forward to five g um, nothing uh, that comes to you know the kinds of of um, capabilities that we'll see on a five g network when it comes to data processing data data collection. Um, so I think there are things that can be done um, on the and should and need to be done on the legal and regulatory side, but it's got to be smart and sophisticated and it can't be um, number one steps that in any way I think, further undermine trust in our institutions. So back to your point earlier about, um, about sort of the erosion of trust, um, I, I worry about um, you know, steps that would actually potentially undermine. Um, you know, it, it may make us feel more secure in the moment, but in the longer term undermine faith in, in, in institutions or in information. Um, but that also goes to the sort of third prong of my whole society answer, um, which is that I do think that civil society has to play a role here. Um, I mean, number one, we need to strengthen independent media. Uh, We need to do a better job about digital literacy and civic education. Um, But those are long-term prospects. I mean, I think the reality is, um, look, I'm an American and we tend to be uh, a little bit individualist. And I would say, frankly, I think um, citizens also have to take more responsibility uh, for how they consume information, um, how they sort of responsibly use platforms. Um, I think Sometimes our tendency can be to to just blame um, those who are providing the the goods, and certainly, you know, with increasing research about the um, addictive nature of some of the um, some of the online information platforms, I do think that's a concern. But I also think that um, we as individuals also have to be responsible for how we engage in this. Um, yes, there is no doubt that um, certain of the social media platforms certainly uh, provide an easy uh, easy venue for discussion to rapidly degrade into argument and anger, but I also think that we need to, you know, all take responsibility for the fact that we need to be able to have
0: much more constructive conversation, even if it's in the online space. And this is a fascinating point about the way that national security is evolving, because previously, as citizens, we could very much kind of give up national security as something that the the rough men on the borders prepared to do justice on our behalf could kind of take responsibility for. But now in this digital interconnected world where all of us have a social media and an internet connection... In many respects, we as the citizen are on the front line of a lot of these national security questions. But... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. What I did want to bring you to, as well, as you kind of mentioned a national security trigger word before the the kind of five G elephant in the room. <laughs> um, we know that this is part of a broader context uh, context of a, what some are calling a technology war between China and the US, uh, and that there are a lot of questions over kind of future emerging technologies, who has control of them, what the risks are, how we kind of look after our national interests in a world that has a great deal of interconnectedness at the technological and economic level. So I wondered if you could give us some reflections on you know, what's, what is behind the US push on 5G and on limiting um, certain uh, Chinese companies like Huawei and ZTE's participation in this market. Is it about economics or is it about security?
1: I think it's absolutely about security. Um, And I would, of course, note that Australia has been a real leader um, on this issue. And so I think that's, uh, that's commendable. Look, I think it's about a couple of different things. One is there's very clear... Um, evidence about the relationship between Huawei ZTE and um, the Chinese government, in particular, the security services, um, as well as, of course, the the party. And those relationships are of concern, Um, uh, number one, of course, in terms of Enabling access to information, potential inclusion of backdoors and all of that. Um, But on top of that, you also have um, a legal framework, understanding that um, in the in the PRC context, um, there's the legal framework and then there's the legal framework. Uh, But uh, I think the reality is that you you also have laws that pretty quickly, pretty clearly um, require companies to uh, hand over data if and when requested. And so you you combine the, the legal framework broadly um, uh, in the PRC with the nature of the relationship between Huawei ZTE and the um, institutions of the state and the party. And then, you know, on top of that um, is simply the the nature of 5G technology. Um, this isn't just the next iteration of network connectivity. This is the next transformative aspect of our wired world and it is not just about the 5G network and and capabilities itself but it is everything that will be layered on top of it after that and the standards that will be set by it. Um, And the standards that will be set by it will have significant implications for not just follow-on technologies but for the rules that come along with it Um, and that potentially has significant implications for a whole raft Of technological developments to come, as well as, frankly, um, dependency relationships, right? So if you have countries who decide to get their 5G technology from from Huawei, the the long-term dependence that will be created by basically ensuring that all follow-on interoperable platforms that operate on that system um, need to come from China or Chinese companies also creates a long-term dependency, which creates the potential for a coercive relationship, um, which of course, as we have seen very clearly through uh, the PRC's activity, certainly in this region, but also more globally, coercion is something that they are Pretty willing to to engage in, so I think it's that combination of all of those pieces together. Um, as if as if that wasn't enough reasons, um, I think that's that's a that's a good sum up of at least some of the the big ways that that I think about it. But I think it is really important to understand that this is really not about economics. I mean, you know, the bottom line, frankly, is that there isn't an American company um, that can provide these capabilities right now. Um, it's actually European companies that are the others who are um, competitive in this space at the moment. Um, so on that pretty you know, just straight up fact, it's pretty clear that this isn't about um, ensuring that an American company
0: um, can win out. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that America isn't necessarily competitive in this space because there's a few frontier tech areas, kind of artificial intelligence, quantum, biotech, where there are real open questions about the ability of kind of America to remain number one um, in a lot of these emerging technologies. And I know America has a, a checkered history with the idea of Industrial policy, um, you know kind of trying to make homegrown industries more competitive, but in a world where we see technology and security seemingly converging more than it ever has in the past, is there more of a role for government to play in supporting certain key strategic industries, and indeed how do we when everything seems to be dual use, how do we even identify what those strategic industries are?
1: Yeah, I think there's absolutely a need for more government engagement in supporting the development of these technologies. I think um, one of the challenges that we see right now, certainly in the United States, is that a lot of the focus on these um, strategic industries or technologies understandably, sort of for historical reasons, comes from um, our Department of Defense. Um, but that, I think, number one, doesn't really reflect what these technologies are and what their applications are, and frankly, the direction we want to be guiding them in the development of, right? Um, and two, if we go back to that, you know, somewhat um, tricky relationship between Silicon Valley and the uh, US government, it's, um, you know, a relationship built primarily through DOD may not be the most effective one. You know. We contrast that with, um, for instance, Beijing, which has really marshaled under Xi Jinping a whole-of-nation approach to particularly AI, uh, but also other emerging technologies, bringing not only the resources of the state, but some strategic guidance around the direction it should go. You know, I do think that there are certain elements, um, you know, obviously I'm a big believer in market forces and in um, the power of creativity in a competitive market to enable the best kind of technological development. But with some of these technologies, the importance of scale, um, the importance of access to very large data sets, the importance of being able to engage in learning um, in pretty robust and and broad-based ways uh, may actually speak to some advantages of at least having some – greater both overarching sort of guidance broader and longer term funding support but also the ability to share uh, certain certain elements of not only the research but also training data and things like that um, I think all of that speaks to why having some kind of you know national policy um, or national direction um, on the development of these technologies is is Going to be necessary if we want to be, number one, competitive. But I also think that competition isn't always just the right frame here because it's not just about winning. Um, the race to build the best AI, it's about what does that AI look like? And is it an AI that's built in an authoritarian mold or is it an AI that's built in a democratic mold, right? This goes back to the, you know, these technologies are essentially neutral. Um, But on the AI front in particular, there's a couple of really different directions in which these technologies could grow and develop. And I think that it is in our interest um, very decidedly to ensure that these do so in a way that is um, not just consistent, with, but is supportive of democracy. So what you're saying is it's a good idea to have a strategy. I think
0: strategies are (laughs) always a good thing. As a strategist, um, I'm certainly a fan of those. Look, you've mentioned, well, we've been mentioning a bit kind of the idea of US-China competition, if you want to use that word, or certainly a a step change in, in the US's approach to China. And I guess we mentioned one elephant in the room before. I want to mention another, which is kind of Donald Trump, right? Because I think a lot of people might associate the US has changed an approach to China to a Trumpian kind of more muscular foreign policy approach and the kind of the Trump trade war. Um, Other people, of course, say there's some type of new emerging Washington consensus that the US needs to change how it thinks about China and needs to think of it in terms of great power competition or in terms of being more of a risk or a threat. Um, You're obviously from the Democrat side of politics in the US. Is there a new Washington consensus on China and how bipartisan is this and where is it likely to take us into the future?
1: So, I think, um, there is, a, a sort of new, um, newly emerged bipartisan consensus in Washington that, um, we need, that, that the increased assertiveness we have seen from China coupled with the technological developments, um, coupled with, you know, increased evidence of, um, China's, uh, you know, under Xi Jinping's, um, in particular willingness to, to, uh, break some really important rules and to attempt to remake them in a way that is um, fundamentally uh, more advantageous to um, authoritarian regimes in particular. I think there is a pretty broad recognition in the US across the political spectrum that that necessitates a new strategy that is uh, more muscular, um, uh, that is very focused on um, what our interests are, but also very much recognizing that our values and interests are fundamentally intertwined um, in this equation. Um, What I would say though is my own view is that the Trump administration's approach is not a strategy that parts of what the Trump administration is doing, I think, actually undermine our ability to have a, a smarter, tougher, more strategic approach to China. And, and in fact, um, that, you know, in, in many cases, there are elements of what the administration is doing that I, I think are, are quite problematic um, and, and in my mind don't actually constitute the kind of approach I'd like to see. But so what I think that means is there's, there's broad consensus on the diagnosis I don't think there's consensus on uh, what the response should be in every form. What I would say though is I I do continue to believe on this issue and on other national security issues that Trump remains largely an outlier. So even within the Republican Party, I think there's a a lot more consensus with Democrats than there is with Trump. Um, And I think that's true on this issue. So I do think that there is potential for um, even greater bipartisan consensus on what to do about China, but that may not necessarily reflect in any way what the
0: Trump administration is doing. Well, if we take this down to an Indo-Pacific kind of level and back to Australia, I mean, how sustained do you think the US's commitment to the Indo-Pacific and our region is likely to be given these new developments?
1: I think that... The U.S. commitment to the Indo-Pacific region and to Australia specifically um, is quite enduring, and and even um, in a in a Trumpian worldview, um, I don't see uh, there being any pullback either from this region or from Australia specifically. I think that for a whole host of reasons, that that will be a an enduring an enduring commitment. Um, and look, I will give the administration credit where it's due. Um, I think the Indo-Pacific strategy that it's been talking about and deploying um is the right thing. I think that I think that the Build Act is a very positive step um, and of course some of the other elements that come along with that. But as with any of these any of these challenges, I think Implementation will matter a lot. Showing up on a lot of these fronts matters. Um, Anytime the U.S. is absent or leaves a vacuum, others seek to fill it. Um, And what we don't want that to be is that for for China to be the one filling that. Um, I think the other thing that's really important is, of course, that in any successful strategy, whether dealing with China or whether dealing with the Indo-Pacific region more broadly, our allies really have to be the first element of that strategy and increasing the number of our partnerships um and I don't think that in engaging um, on any of these issues we should be doing anything uh that actually undermines our allies and that undermines our ability to 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 really st- Continue to strengthen our relationships across the full breadth of it, and of course, that's not just the security space; that's also very importantly in the economic space as well. So, um, so that's where I think you know we we probably need to be doing a bit of a better job. I would certainly urge this administration to to do more um, that puts our allies first um, in any strategy. But but I do um, have deep confidence in the in the abiding and enduring um, commitment of the United States to this region and to and to Australia.
0: Well, that's music I'm sure to many Australians ears to hear that that, that view from you. I guess as we round this out, I mean, we are in Australia, we're heading into a federal election at any time it could be called. And I know a lot of your work does focus and we've touched on this already on kind of the the threat of foreign interference. Um, And we know that, you know, that this particular threat isn't something that's static, it isn't definable, it's changing and it's evolving all of the time. So if you're looking ahead um, to, you know, the next kind of federal elections here in Australia or indeed out to 2020 in the US, what would you be thinking about as a smart strategist as kind of hotspots to watch in this evolution of foreign interference and in particular authoritarian foreign interference in democracies? So
1: I've spent a lot of time working on the sort of technologically enabled elements of this. And so, you know, I'm, um, of course... Uh, watching both how technology is evolving and then the adaptive nature of how um, you know particularly authoritarian regimes and their operations are, are employing them um, so I think as we become better at detecting some of this activity um, we see increasingly sophisticated ways um, that uh, that these nefarious actors are are exploiting technologies I think it's really important that we not look backwards um, but that we continue to look in the present and future about how how um, these technologies can be exploited, um, certainly as we look at um, how AI is going to enable new ways um, of, of interference operations. There's been a lot of conversations around um, something called deep fakes um, or synthetic media more broadly. Um, but basically, this is, um, you know, AI created and enabled um, fake video and audio content um, that is undetectable to the human eye and ear. Um, I think that that is, is quite concerning, um, but I'm— concerned about a whole host of other potential challenges from um, the ability for um, mass data collection coupled with AI to um, even more robustly engage in emotional manipulation, um, to be able to do micro-targeting um, at greater scale. Um, so those are all sort of my big concerns out there um, in addition to a whole host of other big concerns that I have. Um, But I think, you know, some of the most important things that we can be doing um, in the face of this is, number one, building resilience, raising awareness, um, uh, you know, trying to um, set down very clear markers for our adversaries so that they know that um, this kind of activity is – Uh, unacceptable and will be met with consequences, Um, and that we need to be ensuring that we identify our vulnerabilities at home, that we do what we can to close those off, that we have whole of government strategies to make sure we have no seams, Um, and again, to come back sort of where we started, um, that we really respond in a unified way. Many of these tactics are aimed at playing on our divisions, and the more we can respond in a unified way, the less effective any of these attacks are going to be.
0: I think that's a kind of an optimistic way to end it in the sense that we've we've got a rel- relatively dim view of democracy or democracy is going through some growing pains at the moment. But in some sense, what you're saying is democracy's strengths are actually what might pull us through this, the ability to marshal citizen power, to kind of have a decentralized grassroots approach to rebuilding um, some trust and to identifying and kind of countering foreign interference narratives. So the problem set is huge, but... You know, the responses, it seems there is some light on the horizon for how we can go about addressing the challenges. I I certainly hope that's the case. It's what keeps me going every day. (laughs) Well, on that note, I feel like we could keep going um, on this uh, for quite some time, but I do need to wrap up. But, you know, the conversation doesn't have to start and end in the podcast studio. You can get in touch with us by going to Twitter. We're at Apps Policy Forum. You can email us, uh, podcast at net, And you can also check us out on our Facebook group. that's all we have time for in the studio with Laura Rosenberger, but we will be back soon talking all things national security and Indo-Pacific on a phone or computer or anything that has audio and an internet connection near you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.